Okay, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, thanks, Claire. Uh, let me pray as we uh, begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. There are so many of the Psalms full of great truths and wisdom, full of great praise for your name, for who you are. And as we think about just uh, some of the aspects of this psalm that raises that question, who are you? What is it you have done? How can we be in your presence? We pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, through your word now, for your glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, our world needs to hear uh, this message, doesn't it? Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's. Everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The world needs to hear that message and the world needs to believe that message. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Uh, For too long, we, the world, has lived without uh, fear of that fact. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Politicians sometimes lie and argue and scrabble for power. All the while, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Commanders and kings and military leaders line up their troops, how appropriate that is. They strategize and they maneuver. They cut cut off supply lines. And all the while... The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Our CEOs and shareholders plot and, and, and scheme and exploit and buy and store up for themselves, or, or in sort of metaphorical barns, when all the while, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We ourselves, we keep the best for ourselves. Uh, We dismiss the great need of those who suffer around us, those in need. When all along, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For our politicians, our military commanders, our CEOs, for ourselves, as we 
we, we consider this world to be our own, ours to do what we want to do with it. As if the world almost owes us something, as if we can control or apportion it off, as if it's okay to do such things at the expense of others, to capitalise on our advantages, to abuse our powers, to benefit ourselves from our wealth, to turn a blind eye to the injustices, as if we established the earth somehow, as if we founded it all. Humanity, king of all, when all along, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Uh, the waters and the seas uh, re represent the chaos, uh, the unknown, the fear, the mystery, the darkness of nothing. It's what the ancient world used to understand before the beginning. It's as if the psalmist, King David, is saying, uh, did, did any of you bring anything out of nothing into existence from the chaos, from the darkness, from the seas, from the waters, from nothingness. Did you, any of you bring anything into existence? Not a thing. Even the greatest scientists of our time who claim to be so wise cannot still answer the how creation began question. Where, where did it all come from? No one can fathom the origin of things. There's theories of creation and big bangs and antimatters and black holes. Whatever may or may not be right about those things, no one can fathom what, what initiated all of that. It is a fearful thought. Darkness, water, nothing. Who brought life from the unknown? If, any, if even the scientists could explain it, could any of them create it literally out of nothing? No, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. How our world needs to hear this and believe it. Uh, you probably, you may or may not know the old uh, illustration that William Paley, uh, an English clergyman, wrote in a book in the, uh, the beginning of the 18th, 1800s. Uh, in an attempt to demonstrate how absurd it is to believe that there is no creator God. And he gives the analogy of a pocket watch being found in the desert by a nomadic tribe. Uh, they'd hardly pick it up, look at this intricate, regular, ordered, beautiful pocket watch and think, well, uh, it must have just created itself out of nothing. It seems ludicrous then to look out on our world to see how incredible and intricate and regular and beautiful it is and to think, well, there's, there's no creator. No, says Psalm 24. No, says the word of God. No, says uh, King David. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. We read those words and dismiss them so easily in our heads and out, but we shouldn't ignore the significance of those words. God created everything and everyone. It all belongs to him.
The earth is the Lord's. And I guess that means, as the rest of the Psalms and the Word uh, explore, that if this world is good, then God may enjoy it, as we saw in creation in the accounts of Genesis. But if it's bad, it is his to destroy. For it is his. He is king of the universe. Full stop, end of story. No discussion to be had. He is king of all. So the trees belong to him. The streams, the clouds, the animals, the grass, your garden, your house, your iPhone, your car, your money, your children, your spouse, your friends, your company. Basically, you and I belong to God. We are his, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we believe in God or not. How different our world would be if our employers, our politicians, our military world leaders lived in this kind of knowledge and trust and belief. How it should affect our rights and our possessions and our business practices, our view of those less fortunate. Always striving to own a bit more, control a bit more. When it's all the Lord's, dominating a corner of this market or that, when all the corners of markets belong to God already. We strive to climb over others to achieve more in life when those others we're climbing over belong to God. They are his. When we concede that God owns everything and everyone, then loving our neighbour becomes a much more important task than we perhaps presently think. Sharing all that we have becomes much more logical because it's not ours anyway, it's the Lord's. Uh, It's not surprising that in the Old Testament law uh, that God instituted a year of jubilation every seven years, a way of reminding everyone that everything belongs to God, a year when the land would be allowed to rest, a year when all debts would be cancelled, a year when slaves would be set free. It's not yours, says God. It's mine. How our world needs to hear this and believe it. How sad that it hasn't. How sad that we sometimes, often, in our own many worlds, fail to live by this truth. Everything is the Lord's. And it raises the question that uh, King David uh, pens in verse 3. Who then, as he almost asks, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? If everything is the Lord's, everything belongs to him, he created it. Verse 3, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? We're meant to know the answer, aren't we? Well, surely no one. Uh, the psalm here doesn't, exact, uh, doesn't explicitly point out uh, the judgment on those who have stood against this truth that God is the creator and owner of all things. Most psalms that begin with this kind of introduction of God creating or owning everything, uh, being sovereign over all, also uh, talk about God's right judgment on the world as, that's rejected him. But the implication is the same here, isn't it? 
if this is the Lord Almighty, King of all, then who on earth, literally, can come near him? Who on earth can come near him? I know if I spent time getting my head round this King of all God, I ought to fear his very existence, let alone the thought of trying to come near him to his holy place, represented in the Old Testament by the temple in Jerusalem, high on the hill. If I were God, looking down at all of this, all that humanity had turned his creation into, all that it had become, looking at the world politics and military campaigns and multinational companies and aims and individual attitude, I'd wipe it out and start again. But there is hope. For he is king of all, but he is also king of salvation. Uh, You see, this psalm is probably a collection of liturgies, uh, which would have been called out by a priest in the temple of God in Jerusalem and responded to by followers of God who came on mass pilgrimages to the temple uh, to seek favour and blessing from God, to present their sacrifices to him, asking for forgiveness. And so as the priest begins uh, to speak, as the worshippers start their climb up the the short uh, hill to the temple gates, the, the priest calls out, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Well, we better think twice then. Maybe we shouldn't be walking up this path, approaching the temple gates of this God. What have we come here for? Perhaps they ask each other. Who who can stand before such a God as this? Who can expect such a God as this to consider who we are and what we're like? Why would a creator help us to defend us in battle? And the priest seemingly uh, confirms their hesitancy calling loud over the worshippers' footsteps and the tired tired pilgrims, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? But the people of God know this call. They, They know this liturgy, this song. They know this creator God. And they know what he requires of them. For they've heard of this God in his word. They've learnt of this one and only God. They know their scriptures. They know that he is the king of all, but he is also the king of salvation. And so they call back to the priest in the temple in one voice using the words we now find in verse 4 to 6. We're going to do it now. I told you it's going to be awkward. Call and response. Uh, But these are great words. So I'm going to read to you verse 3, and you're going to respond with me uh, with verses 4 to 6. So if you've got your Bible, Psalm 24, verse 4 to 6. Verse 3, I'm going to read, then you come in for 4 to 6. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Together. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob.
they, we are not actually saying anything clever here. Uh, clean hands is just a reference to being innocent of crimes. Uh, much like today, we'd say, well, my, my hands are clean. I wasn't involved. I'm innocent of any, any crime. In other words, I, I'm a good citizen uh, of this earth, of this community. I follow the laws and the regulations of God and those in authority. And, and they go on, don't they, to claim that they have a pure heart. But it, it simply means that they live this life as if they mean it. They, they're integ- they have integrity to their hearts. They don't just put up a front in, other, in public before other people. They don't just sort of look like followers of God's standards and laws. They're convicted by a desire, an attitude that rejoices in following God's commands. They want to follow God's commands. It's who they are. It's what they live for. So they don't just go to church on Sunday and then not mention or think about God again in the rest of the week. They don't claim the title of follower of God or a Christian, as we would say today, but they're not look at his word in the week or pray to him. Instead, they delight in God's word. They they delight to serve him and others. They've come on pilgrimage to the temple to meet with God. They've worked hard to know this God. And they delight in their hearts to live in the presence and the blessing of God. It is a joy to them to worship, to serve God, to approach his temple. Is it a joy for us to worship and serve God in every area of our lives. Those who can come before God uh, are also those, verse 4, who put no trust in idols. So they have an integral heart. They desire to follow God. Verse 4, they put no trust in idols. Again, it's a simple statement. We, we can approach God when we know there are no other ways to God. There's no other options, there's no other religion, there's no other idols, there's no other hope in money or comfort or any of those things, no other ways. There's no option to avoid judgment other than coming to the God who, uh, of wrath, who created it all. Perhaps you've searched this life for answers, for comfort or peace, uh, and we might find it for a while This world offers us plenty of idols, plenty of temporary satisfaction, relationships or mindfulness or money. But there's only one place to find true and eternal hope. And the people coming up this hill to the temple know it. They've cast off all other idols. We must approach this king of all, as terrifying as that might be with a commitment to reject all other options. What they're not saying, in other words, is that they are perfect, by no means. Otherwise, as we've said, who who can approach this Lord? No one. They love God with their lives. Their lives reflect that. They desire to follow him. They have integrity to their hearts. They have a desire to find salvation and hope in this God. But like us, perhaps they know they're a long way short of perfection. A long way short of where this creator God desires us to be. Which is why they say we, we can stand in the presence of the Lord because we earnestly seek him. But look what they receive, verse 5. 
they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God, from God their Saviour. The point is clear, isn't it? In their seeking, in their desire to have clean hearts and a pure heart, sorry, clean hands and a pure heart, they are still found guilty in, in practice, even though their lives are full of integrity, they are far from perfect. They often fall into their own selfishness and greed, just like us. But if we seek God with all our heart, God will freely bless and vindicate us. He will save us. He will announce us innocent. In simple terms, it means our only hope is to seek God in all integrity. And in him we will find salvation, hope. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Who can stand in the presence of this Lord? Well, we can if we seek him earnestly, because he will forgive. He is a truly and only great hope. For he is the king of glory. So we know who God is. We know who is able to stand in his holy presence. The pilgrims, followers of God, now stand at the great doors of the temple. And now God's people are full of anticipation as they stand there. They've declared that they are saved by God, vindicated by his will, and they've approached him with integrity. They don't have a backup option in their back pocket with a separate, different idol in the back pocket and they don't disappear off and ignore him the rest of the year. They've approached him trusting this is our only chance and they've been vindicated. They've been blessed and they stand at the gates and they have anticipation. What is going to happen now? And so the people continue declaring together their call and response with the priests. So uh, if you will, uh, if you read verse 7, and then uh, I'm going to read verse 8, and then we're all going to finish reading uh, 9 and 10. So now the people get to the gates, and they're there, and they want to come in. And the people say, verse 7 together, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle together lift up your heads you gates lift them up you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in who is he this king of glory the lord almighty he is a king of glory it's nothing short of like a, a battle cry is it a call to stand to lift up your heads to people everywhere open the gates the king of glory is coming the king of glory is on his way. Get ready. The one who will vindicate us and bless us. And who is this king of glory? The, the question's repeated. Who is he? Well, he, he's strong. He's mighty. He's mighty in battle. He is the Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. See, it's a, with an attitude of seeking God's vindication, striving to live with a pure heart and with the anticipation of the king of glory meeting them at the temple, that they will enter those gates and they will give their sacrifices to God for the forgiveness of their sins. But there's almost an unsaid problem to the psalm. If God is good, created all, 
than even striving to live with a pure heart. We still need vindication, but how can we have it? How, how can these offerings we bring, how can just opening the gates be enough? That's why the psalm looks forward. The king of glory is coming. The solution is on his way. Something bigger is going to happen here. For the king of, of glory did come. The promised saviour of all. Jesus, the king of glory, entered our world and sacrificed himself on the, on the, on the offering, as an offering. He not only had an attitude to seek God with a pure heart, he was actually the only one who had a pure and clean heart. His hands were literally clean, never did a thing wrong before his heavenly father. And so as Jesus' spotless righteousness is offered to us, he takes our sin upon himself in his death, his sacrifice on the cross, and we are vindicated we are blessed, not just for an annual pilgrimage, because he has now come eternally. As we saw in, in Holiday Club, the, the curtain is now torn. Access, entryway to the Heavenly Father, to be in his presence, is available through the sacrifice of Jesus. The King of glory has come. The gates no longer need to be opened. They are open. And so they lived in anticipation of the coming king. And I guess as we read it again today, we still have anticipation. Not for the gates to be opened, they are open. But we still await his return. He is both the one who can ascend the mountain of the Lord without need for vindication in the Old Testament, but he is also the one who is the anticipated king of glory who is to come in our time he provides the solution to every human being that has forgotten the king of glory he is the one who can forgive all of our rejections of god he is the one who will come again in the future in glory and this psalm saw the coming king of glory as they waited for the savior jesus and we see the coming king of glory as we await his second coming are we ready for Jesus, the King of glory, today? Have we sought him with a pure heart and clean hands? Have we asked for his forgiveness? Have we asked him to vindicate us and bless us? Not because we deserve it, not because we're perfect, but because we know he is our only chance and we seek him with all integrity. Our hearts are earnest. We've rejected all other options we put our lives only in the Lord Jesus. We've cast off all idols and we wait. We have great anticipation of the coming King, knowing the gates are open, forgiveness is won on the cross already, and we can have life with the King forever. If that's true for us, then we can sing this psalm. We can see the great power reminding us of our right fearfulness before God Almighty, hearing the question, who can stand in his presence, and knowing the answer, well, well, we can, because we've come to Jesus, the King of glory, and he's coming again. The King of glory is here. He lives in the hearts of every true believer, 
the King of Glory will come again. He will come to bring his final judgment on all of humanity. He will bring justice to all those situations we thought about, we look at around our world, both internationally, nationally, locally, and in our own hearts. He will bring justice to them all. Our only hope is the Lord Jesus. Who is he, this King of glory? He's the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Let me pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, you are creator of all. All things belong to you. Everything and everyone. Forgive us when we don't live like that. Change our hearts so that we see you are our only hope. May we seek you knowing you are our only hope. May you vindicate us and bless us, not because we are good, but because Jesus has paid the sacrifice, has given us his pure heart. May we live for you in response. May we strive to bring your justice in our own lives and around. May we live for your glory, remembering our right fearfulness of who you are, but rejoicing every day for what you have done for us. Help us to think through how this psalm might apply to some of the aspects in our lives we thought about today, in our workplaces, in our families, in our country, in our communities. May we at least never forget, you are the King of glory, the Lord Almighty. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.